live from Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics with moderator Justin Russell. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is time for the best political talk show that you've never heard of. It is a Backroom Politics live from podcast studios here in Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., Joining me as they do every week, he is at my one o'clock. He is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade. He is Alan Moore. Alan, good afternoon. Hello. Sitting directly across from me at my 12 o'clock, she is the former on-air and off-air production talent goddess at NBC and NBC News. She is the one that we know as Laura Chavez. Hello, Laura. Good afternoon, everyone. And joining us remotely from New York City, she is the former attorney and counselor for the Hillary Clinton campaign in Ohio in 2016. She's Sharmila Chari. Hey, hey Sharmila. And, and checking in from Florida, he is the retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is Admiral Ken Carradine. Hello, Ken. Ken? Can't hear you, Ken. Hello, Justin. Hello, Justin. How are you? Oh, that's fine. All right. There we go. Hey, um... The uh, can can actually looks like an air traffic control and actually sounds like he's calling us from air traffic control tower. That's fantastic. Um, I, let me just start off the show by saying th- this is a special edition. Uh, if you need a second, Sharon, I'll go to mute. <laughs> you okay? Don't die. Bad okay. time for a sneeze attack. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me just say this is a special edition. This is uh, first of all, this is our eighth birthday. Uh, Backroom Politics has been doing this for eight, eight years. We started myself, uh, Bob Hines, Admiral, and, and uh, Bob Hines, and Congressman Al Swift started the show at a small table in Shelley's back room eight years ago, during the midterms of the 2010 election cycle, and it has now grown to be what it is today. Uh, so, number one, happy birthday to us. Number two, this is a special edition. As every every uh, midterm, we do a post mortem. Uh, but I do want to say this. Um, so much has happened in the past 24 hours. Uh, for the first time in the history of me being here at Podcast Studios, I also want to say hello, obviously, Rob, our uh, production engineer inside the cage. Hi, Rob. And somewhere out there at a spot in an undisclosed location in upstate New York is Audrey Howerton, our producer. For the first time in our history here at Podcast Village, I am actually drinking in studio. There is so much going on. I am actually drinking alcohol. It is the only way I can get through the next two hours of this edition. In case you're wondering, hey, Justin, you don't usually do that. Why are you drinking? Number one, we've got to do our midterms uh, review. But still, in case you've missed it, the president gave an hour and a half presser today in the East Room, which you thought wouldn't be what we would lead off with. No, because right after that bastion of headlines, the president requested that Jeff Sessions submit his resignation as attorney general of the United States and Jeff Session has complied uh, as of this afternoon at about 2.30. Uh, attorney General Jeff Sessions resigned at the request of the president, ending the, ten- the tenure of this really controversial, in some instances, beleaguered, least loved in the Oval Office type attorney general. Let's start there. Uh, Sharmla, Number one, it, it, it's not like we didn't see this coming. This is this shouldn't be a shock to us, but is the timing of it the shock that should really get us spun up? Is this something we should just shrug our heads and go, eh, it's Trump? I mean, 
Part yes and part no. Obviously, I think everyone knew that, you know, getting rid of Sessions was coming after the midterm. I think that it's interesting that the president didn't even wait for some of these more hotly contested Senate contests to be settled, right? I mean, I think the, the Arizona Senate race, Cinema and McSally, uh, is still too close to too close to call. Uh, but I think the president is confident in the fact that, I mean, and, you know, John Tester was actually just shown to have won by a narrow victory. So, but I think the president was confident enough in the fact that he would still have a majority and so felt that this was the time to pull the trigger, maybe is feeling overly optimistic that all the un the contested elections will fall his way and therefore pretty much anyone he nominates can get confirmed. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, in a normal as normal as this administration could be, uh, in in a normal course of events, the president would have waited a little longer just to kind of firm up his majority and get, the, and especially considering there are some new players coming into the Senate, it's not just all incumbents that he's dealing with. There are some, there are some new people on the Republican side, including Josh Hawley, uh, including Mike Braun, that he might want to feel out before making a move like this. But, you know, this president is not known for his foresight, so... Alan Moore, are you surprised by the timing on this? Yeah, I thought it would be tomorrow. <laughs> At I least mean, let the dust settle for the I midterms. Mean, I have been. <laughs> You've been picking them in the death pool, for some in the time, um, parachute um, pool. When it became very clear, and I and actually, and I thought it was the right thing to do at the right time, uh, because. It's important that a president have some level of confidence in his attorney general. And when you're out there trashing your attorney general publicly over an extended period of time, it, it creates for dysfunctional government and embarrassment. And it's just unseemly. There, there was a time a few months into this administration when Republicans in the Senate said, no, Mr. President, no, 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 don't do that. When the president was uh, was angry be, once he realized the implications of the attorney general um, having recused himself over all things uh, relating to Russia, but it became so untenable and challenging that it was clear that he had to go. The question was how long after the election before he actually goes would it be in the this quiet period before January when the new Congress is sworn in, or would it be after the first of the year? I thought it would be a little bit longer than today. Today, yes. <laughs> But I mean, Alan, the, the logic behind this, I mean, one could say that the president was emboldened by the pickup of what now looks like two, possibly three seats in the Senate, maybe as many as four in the Senate, which would be unusual in a midterm for a president having the same party keep control and gain seats in one of the chambers. Does Is this a matter of fact that he felt emboldened today by the by the Senate numbers and he said, I'm invincible, I've got a pocket full of kryptonite? Well, look, it, it, he was... When he knew he had retained control of the Senate, he knew that it shouldn't be that difficult to get uh, a new attorney general confirmed. Um, whether it was 50-50, 51-49, 52-53, 54, um, he would have the votes in the new year 
Um, he still has the votes right now, 51-49. Um, he may try to do this soon. I don't know. So, uh, no, I don't think he feels invincible about it. Had had the, the, had the Senate flipped, um, then I think uh, that, that would have been interesting if there had been a rush to try to get somebody in. Because if the Senate had flipped then he would have to be negotiating with a new Democrat majority in the Senate over who the next attorney general is going to be. And that would just be a longer negotiation. I'm not saying he wouldn't have been able to come up with somebody. But, Laura, because we're going to talk about the press conference that happened today where the the president addressed the midterms and other questions from media, it looked like the president— was on the ropes it, it, for somebody who's saying I am, you know, we kicked butt, we are number one, you know, maga, maga, maga. It, there was a distinct sense, at least from people I talked to that were in the room, that they felt that he was like a cornered cat. I mean, it, is this part of Trump world way to uh, throw some dust or some magic pixie dust on? The fact that they took a shellacking in the House, the fact that uh, the press conference did not go well, is do you put Jeff Sessions and tell him that you're fired as a way to cover all this up and still not think that we're not going to see through it? That definitely is the style of this administration where you have something happen over here, so you create something else over there. That way people stop talking about whether it's you know a terrible press conference or a uh, give uh, pretty much losing the house or whatever it is. This is kind of him showing that he's in control again. This is him uh, reaffirming his status in the White House, you know, just reminding people he's in charge, even though the House might not be in lockstep with him, even if uh, the Senate, while yes, they do have the majority, I feel like there will be a couple people, you know, I think Manchin's win was a little bit of a surprise to everyone, or to a lot of people. There were so many surprises about last night. There were so many surprises last night. But I feel like this was definitely an opportunity for him to beat his chest, remind people that he's the president, he's the one in charge, don't look over there, don't look behind the curtain, pay attention to me. Uh, In the letter to the president, uh, Jeff Sessions wrote in a quote, he uh, honored to have served as attorney general and had worked to implement the law enforcement agenda based on the rule of law that formed a central part of your, meaning President Trump's, campaign for the presidency. Uh, (laughs) Admiral Ken, I read that, and it's almost like kind of a middle finger to Trump. Oh, yes, it definitely bite me. But but, but here's here's the thing is, was Jeff Sessions unfairly vilified by Trump and did Trump nation unfairly view sessions well yeah I mean Jeff Sessions did what he was supposed to do he basically followed the ethical rule of the law maybe not you know people well he didn't have to do it well he it was the spirit of what he was trying to do he knew that uh, he probably at some level uh, had been involved in thought well the right thing to do is to step away from this and let 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 the uh, the process go for it as it should so you know this this the president's going after him uh, I think came out of the president's belief that the Attorney General of the United States worked for him 
he was his attorney general versus the, the, the lawyer for the country. And if you think about it, he expects that all that loyalty, um, uh, the same kind of loyalty from everybody. If you, look, if you think about the, the, the beginnings of the press conference, when he was basically doing a tap dance on the political graves of the Republicans who lost last night, you know, because especially the ones, the ones who did not embrace him, right. and we're going to get, to, and him, we're going to get to that, right? It did not let him. This is his style. So, yeah, you know, was it unfair? Yeah, but you know what? I, I hate the word fair. I, I really don't. I, I, it's just not a, it's not a good word to be, to, I think, to be used by adults. Was it inappropriate? Extremely. Was it, uh, was it, um, was it mean spirited? Absolutely. Uh, was it unwarranted? Completely. And was it right? Absolutely not. Uh, Alan Moore, the president responded by saying, quote, we thank Attorney General Jeff Sessions for his service and we wish him well. Uh, that couldn't have been any colder than a deep freezer if you tried. Uh, did Was the expectations of the president of Jeff Sessions, because everybody in legal circles that has either served in the DOJ or been around DOJ that I've talked to has always said Jeff Sessions did the absolute right thing and his staff would always tell him that he should have recused himself. Was Donald Trump living in a dream world when this whole thing went down with Jeff Sessions? Yeah, I think uh, Ken described it quite accurately um, that Sessions did what he needed to do to maintain any credibility with the Congress uh, and with uh, the the greater world, the president didn't understand why Jeff Sessions had to do this. He misunderstood, as Ken noted, the role of the attorney general. Um, as far as the president is concerned, these people are his staff. That's how he treats members of Congress of his own party. Um, and he expects, uh, expects loyalty. And if he doesn't get it, then he just trashes people in a public way. It is it is grotesque. It's unseemly. It's not what we've ever seen before. It's become a new normal. But if the president had gushed over Jeff Sessions, one, he would never have asked for, wanted to gush, he would never have asked for the uh, resignation today. It, I noted that the letter was undated. And so the letter has probably been in hand for some time, and yeah. it was just released today. Um, and and if the president had gushed over his service and all the great things he'd done, that would have sounded super phony as well. And we'd be talking about <laughs> what, what to, phony baloney as, as opposed to the guy that he's been trashing publicly for more than a year. So the guy, the guy now was he's loyal. gone. It, the guy was loyal. It, it, it <laughs> he, he, as far as the president is concerned, he probably, for him, it was a stretch to even thank him for his service. But he, the last thing he's going to do, and it would have, and it really would have been grotesque oh. hypocrisy if he had, if he had. There is so much hypocrisy in this whole situation. Listen, I, I think if you think that, if you expect that a Donald Trump, after what he had done to Sessions, would have scored any use points for himself by saying, but gee, Jeff, you were fabulous. You were great. 
come on down to the Oval Office and let's do a Nikki Haley type ha- movement. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like he's gone <laughs> now. Type moment. Yeah. <laughs> what I don't, what I don't think though is uh, is that he was doing. He decided to do this today well, because of a disastrous press conference. I think the president liked his press conference. He's enjoying talking to the press. And I, 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 hold on, hold on, Ken. So. So I don't think he's thinking, oh, boy, did that ever go bad? What can I do now? Let's get rid of Jeff. Um, it, 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 I think the president <laughs> thought that, that, he, that he had a great day yesterday, yeah, which he didn't. And I, and I think he thought he had a great day today in front of the press. Ken, and then we're going to, then we're going to Laura. Go ahead, Ken. Uh, unless I missed something, um, the president had already asked for Sessions' resignation prior to the press conference. We just found out about it after the press conference, but the, the, unless I missed a report, uh, and I don't think I did because I was listening pretty intently this afternoon, the, uh, the die had already been cast. So when that one reporter asked him about his plans for, for making changes in the White House, um, you know, Trump danced around that. But I, I, you know, I, I believe that the torpedo had already been launched from the tubes at that point. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the speculation we're getting out of the White House, Laura. You and I were talking about it earlier that you had heard – uh, that, in fact, when the president said during the press conference, oh, I'll address that later, as Ken pointed out, we had already found out about We hadn't found out about it, but that was already done, is what we're hearing. Just not to repeat myself, the letter submitted had no date on it. That letter oh, no, 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 was no, in no, hand. No, no. That, 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 that letter, letter has been, been asked for. It was in hand. Um, yes, we know that it had been. It, that, what that, we that, didn't that, know. What we no, no. What the point we're trying to make is is that we didn't know. Yes, the rumor has been going around Washington that that was in Pete Sessions' hard drive for the better part of six months now, and. And the reality is, is that we just didn't know when he was going to pull it out of the hard drive, put it into an email, and send it to EOP. Yeah, you met Jeff, not, I, not Pete. Pete Sessions. Uh, well, we're going to talk about Pete Sessions sorry, later. I was sitting there thinking, Jeff wait. Sessions. I'm yeah, sorry, okay, Jeff no, no, Sessions. Fair enough. But 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 we knew that that was that was happening. And Laura, I, I think you can you've heard the same thing, that this was just something that. The president said, all right, we know you have that letter. If you want to send that letter, it would probably be a really good idea to do it now, unless because if you don't, we're going to tweet. Yeah, there had been uh, pretty much, I wouldn't even call them, I would love to call them underground whispers, but everything seems like a shout right now, so it doesn't really seem appropriate. But for lack of a better uh, term of phrase, there there's been, been buzz. There's been buzz about the fact that Jeff Sessions' uh, resignation letter has been written for about eight to ten months. Um, obviously... It has probably been edited, and as Alan put up a great point, it didn't have a date. It was ready to go at any point in time. The timing of it is kind of great for the president, to be perfectly honest. He finally he – know, he needs an attorney general that will definitely, like, lockstep with him in the Mueller investigation. Now that the House has been turned over, investigations can start on this president. He needs someone that can essentially say, mm, I think that's a bad idea. Shut it down. I think that's a bad idea. Shut it down. Uh, Matt Whitaker is going to be pretty much a more... The former chief of staff to Jeff Sessions, who is now yes. stabbed his boss in the back and taken over as the acting attorney general. Yes, that that is the that one. That Matt Whitaker. That Matt Whitaker. That Matt Whitaker. Uh, I think he's going to be uh, definitely in lockstep with the president pretty much every step of the way. This isn't going to be something where he's hemming and hawing and recusing himself at, you know, 
the possibility of a conflict of interest. This is something where uh, the Trump, uh, President Trump is going to say, I want this. Matt Whitaker is going to say, done. I mean, those of us in Washington media circles and legal circles have come across Matt Whitaker. We know who Matt Whitaker is. Uh, Laura, I mean, Jeff Whitaker strikes me as being more the loyal soldier, the nuances of the law be damned, I'll do whatever you tell me, Mr. President type, as opposed to, here's the law, you really need to recuse yourself. Because there's no questions that uh, Acting Attorney General Whitaker might have a problem that he might have to recuse himself because of statements and commentary that he's written on and as an analyst for CNN. Is, does that make sense? Sharmila, you're the attorney here right now. Does that make sense? Is that a concern? So not knowing the content of his statements or his writing for CNN. Well, he's, or, he's already made several statements and has written posts to CNN about Mueller and the Russian investigation. I see. So you're saying that you're asking the question, will the fact that he has prejudged this investigation and kind of made statements about it? Well, you have to recuse himself as a lawyer. I think it's really going to depend on the nature of the statements and kind of in what capacity they were made. Are they were they made unsolicitedly? Were they made kind of as part of a formal interview? Um, no, he was just, he was a paid advisor to CNN. Um, again, I think it's going to really depend on the nature of his statements, right? If he's simply opining on the law and his interpretation of it, then it could be that he is not, you know, that he's not recused. If the statements have more political tone, then there could be a possibility of, you know, requiring recusal. But it, it really is going to depend on the content and the tone of the statements and the kind of the um, the context in which they were made. And I think uh, Sharmila brings up a good point. It's going to be a lot about interpretation. So we'll, again, have this amazing divide between possibly the right and the left is my speculation, where the left is going to say, no, he needs to recuse himself. This is clearly a conflict of interests. Um, you know, he called for the indictment of Hillary Clinton. He uh, had derogatory things to say, I believe, about uh, Rosenstein and the Russia investigation, um, whereas the uh, people who are more conservative and are on a more Trumpian side of things will have the ability to say, well, I think he was actually just, you know, talking about the law, talking about the structure of it. This doesn't seem to be an opinion based thing, even though it was actually an opinion article. And, and Laura brings up a big point. I mean, this guy has had not a whole heck of a lot of love for Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general and uh, special counsel Mueller. Uh, does this put even more tension between the White House, the attorney general's office at, Ken- at the Kennedy Building and the special counsel's office? Could, could I suggest that none of us know what we're talking about right now. We don't know this guy Whitaker. People do have the right to express their views when they're advisors to the press. That was not Jeff Sessions' problem. Jeff Sessions recused himself over all matters Russia because he gave testimony to the Senate about his contacts that turned out to be incorrect when he was reminded he was involved in meetings with Russians. He had to recuse himself for those reasons, not because he'd expressed an opinion. I I don't believe that we know enough about Whitaker to suggest, as Laura did, that he's just going to do whatever the White House asks him. 
We don't know. He's temporary. He doesn't want to get crossways with the Congress for the sake of his own career and future. It's a temporary thing. It's just happened today. I suggest we might want to talk about the elections Which we because will. I think we've Which we will, run out is, of material on what's happening. I absolutely disagree. With, I think this is a big no. I think this is a very big subject. You're talking about the guy that literally has gone from the chief of staff's position. Which I don't recall the last time a chief of staff has gone directly to the attorney general's office. Now, I, I could be wrong. I don't remember in my lifetime. But to have a chief of staff go and become the acting attorney general, that makes him the highest ranking lawyer and law enforcement official in the country. There, and, and some of us do know him. Some of us have interacted with him. We have people that we do know that have interacted with him in the past. We know his position because we've seen it on CNN. And if his position is the way he feels, he has a responsibility to either disclose that or accuse himself when it comes to the special counsel's issue. It sounds Absolutely. to me it sounds to me like if he's been public about stuff, then it's already disclosed. Recusal is a different matter. We can sit here all day long and talk about recusal. He was not a player during the campaign in these issues that are being looked at. Saved by the music. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about said midterms. Uh, We will be... Ken's shaking his head. He wants in on this, but too late. He got the last word. You don't want any part of this? All right, goodbye. We're out. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. I found him out at a show down. When I think of him, how much I love him. I got a desperate notion. That's the way I feel today. My heart is aching because he's making a plaything of my devotion. That's the way I feel today. Without any reason or a word to say, that man turned his keys in. What good is living? I'll soon be giving my body up to the ocean. That's the way I feel today.
because he's making a plaything of my devotion. That's the way I feel today. Without any reason. Live from Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics with moderator Justin Russell. You know something, I, I got to say this, some of the best conversations we have about this, the, the stuff that we talked about off the air here in the studio was act, would have been actually good on air stuff too, but we're moving on. The uh, In case you don't know, the midterm elections for the first term of President Trump happened yesterday. And let me go around and ask, Laura Chavez, was yesterday a shellacking a win for the Republicans, a shellacking or a win for the Democrats? I've been describing yesterday as a win for my head and a loss for my heart. <laughs> that is how I've been describing it. I don't I know, even know where to go with that. How, uh, how do we even take that? The Democrats took back the House, and that is a win for my head. You can tell me that you know they'll be in charge of a bunch of committees. They'll be able to you know kind of have that check and balance, and that'll really put things kind of not necessarily in perspective again, but it'll it'll help uh, to kind of maybe pace things a little bit more, but my heart is hurting because there were a couple key races that I really wanted to have be, that were almost like, for lack of a more mature way of saying this, like good versus bad. It was, you know, Cobra Kai versus Johnny, and and all of a sudden the Cobra you Kai really swept made, the leg. You know I, made I, you made I made a Karate Kid reference. I did. That was awesome. I did, because I feel <laughs> like there were just a couple races where... The Florida governor's race where or, you know, Stacey Abrams and Kemp, you know, there were just a couple races where like Democrats really better O'Rourke and Ted Cruz. There were a couple races where it was like, you know what, this is heart versus another guy or this is heart versus establishment. This is heart versus Trumpian politics. And you just wanted the heart to win. And it doesn't look like that's the case. So it just felt. While I can tell myself it was an amazing day, the Democrats did it, hooray, you took back the House. There are just those small, like, twinges of pain that I keep feeling every time I think about Beto O'Rourke saying, you know, I'm so expletive proud of you guys, you know, in his uh, concession. Expletive. Yeah. By the way, I I, got to tell you something. I kind of liked it when they let that one fly on on CNN, MSNBC. Fox, Fox did not. Fox did not uh, let that go. Go I don't figure. Think. That's weird. Shocking. Admiral Ken, win for the Republicans, win for the Democrats, shellacking. Well, I um, I learned a long time ago the secret to happiness is keeping expectations in uh, in check. Um, I knew that the Democrats were going to take the House. I was pretty sure that the uh, Republicans were going to hold the Senate. Um, my expectation was that we would put a body in place that would bring some balance back to um, government and some some reality back into what we've been seeing the last two years. So I'd say the win was for the American people. Okay. (laughs) Joining us, I believe, on the line, Dan Lipner, is that you on the line? That is indeed me on the line. Sorry I was late. I heard there was a job opening at DOJ and needed to get my resume in. (laughs) Do you think you have a chance, Dan? Do you really think you have a Uh, chance? Uh, based on the other hires, I, I think I have a good shot. <laughs> and considering they don't really do background checks there. Wow. You might just, you might no, just they, they, That's not true. They actually do background checks there. Uh, Rob Porter, cough, cough. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 
anyway, Dan Lipner, uh, shellacking for the Democrats, win for the Democrats, shellacking or win for Republicans yesterday? Uh, mostly a win for Democrats. But uh, and when I joined the call, uh, uh, it was mentioned that, you know, there were a couple of heart races, but mostly it was what that was what everyone predicted. So there weren't really the outliers or the surprises because of the incredible turnout. The turnout was high. This was a somewhat predictable off-year federal cycle. There weren't that many surprises. Alan Moore? So it was a good day for Democrats. It was not the tsunami that uh, the, the big-hearted ones were hoping for. Um, but it was it was definitely a wave. Now, having said that, you have this blue wave in the in the House. The House uh, turns Democratic by healthy numbers, but there's also an undertow, uh, and the undertow is what happened in the Senate uh, that pushed in the opposite direction, where the Senate not only held, but it's going to pick up two, two, two at th- least. maybe three, um, with long outside chance on four. Um, and and uh, and that's pretty surprising. Um, and that's very important in terms of of the president being able to continue to do some things and to have some checks. I'm not troubled by checks and balances. I was in the Senate when we won the Senate, when we lost the Senate, when the House uh, uh, was pretty much a Democrat the whole time. Um, it, it finally turned after I after I had left. Um, but. But uh, so, yes, it was there was something everybody could grab onto in politics. It might be we could say that it was purple rain falling yesterday. <laughs> Using a per- so so far, let's just review for movie references. We've gone with Prince and we've gone with Karate Kid. All right, let's see if we can close this out. Charlotte, movie reference. Sure. Well, I I agree with everything that Laura said. Um, One thing I was thinking about this morning was that I feel like being a Democrat, you know, these last few years has really been kind of an exercise in finding silver linings, almost a silver linings playbook. Yes, Charmelette. That's right. Wow. Um, Okay. First of all, A, you really had to stretch on that one. But we'll let it play. We'll we'll let I'll it give play. it to her. I'll give yeah, it to her. Not, no, no. I, I think I think you had to go back in time to get it correctly. If she had made an endless love reference, I would have gone with that. But anyway, Charlotte, was it a shellacking? It was. I think it was more a shellacking in the mind of some Democrats. I think you know a lot of people on the left got their expectations up very high, and anything short of to- a total wipeout of the Republicans is seen as a disappointment. In reality, you know, it's it's. I think it's better than nothing. Obviously, you know, I'm happy in that the races I canvassed for and volunteered for turned blue. Um, and you know, I think on the East Coast, especially, we have a lot to celebrate. But humble brag, <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> but at the same time, I think that one one takeaway I'm looking at right now that makes me concerned isn't just about, you know, Democrats or Republicans at the top of the ticket, but it's seeing the trends that occurred in this election and feeling that this election only serves to make our nation more divided. And that's something that I think we all need to kind of keep our eyes on and really think about when we think about the results of these midterms. So, Laura, it looks like right now that uh, 
if it continues the way it's going to go, because we already know that Montana's been decided. There's still, <clears throat> excuse me, there are still three seats out there. Uh, Arizona's still out there. Uh, which one is also out there, Alan? Well, Florida. Florida is still Florida not, is but a that's question, a question And then mark. we have the runoff in Mississippi. Mississippi, correct, with the Mike Gatsby race. Uh, largely, Florida looks like it's going to go Republican. And I don't see Rick Scott not taking that. Do you agree with that, Alan? That's what it looks like at this point. Yeah, I mean, Bill Nelson's called for a recount. Uh, Admiral Ken, you're sta- in it's Florida. A, it's a statutory recount. Yes. Is, did, did it fall a statutory? Did it go under 0. 0.5? Uh, under 0. 0.5. Yeah. It did go under 0. 0.4. 4. Okay. Uh, that being the case, then yes, then the Secretary of State has a mandatory recount. But, uh, Admiral Ken, you're, you're probably seeing that that's probably not going to be a big deal. No, I don't think so. Um, I, I think that um, I think that it's probably going to go. It's going to go red. Uh, it's just going to go red. I mean, uh, I think a lot's been made about a lot of noise has been made about the fact that this is Trump's home state. Um, I think that um, uh, there were a lot of people that were really, really uh, anxious about um, uh, Gillum for a number of reasons. Uh, I think some of the uh, accusations of him being under investigation um, probably stuck in in people's minds. But uh, in the case of Bill Nelson, he's been he's been in Washington forever, and uh, I think uh, the president probably made a pretty good uh, case of saying, "Hey, look, you know, you took a chance on uh, in, in so many words, you took a chance on me. You know, let's uh, let's and you know you know Rick Scott, he's done well for you. Let's let's take a chance on him." So, that. That said, Bill Nelson's really been lucky throughout his political career. I mean, he drew Catherine Harris as an opponent one cycle. So uh, he's, he, he's led kind of a blessed life. However, in the Florida world, it is worth noting that it went dramatically in another direction with the, uh, the, the ballot initiative to restore felon voting rights. And it, that won by a huge margin, which kind of begs the question – who votes for Rick Scott and DeSantis and restoring felon voting rights? That's an interesting split ticket. A whole bunch Alan of people. Moore. A whole uh, bunch of people. Yeah, I mean, I mean, seventy percent. A seventy percent win is a huge win. I didn't see. I knew it was going to. I, I had a feeling it would win. I didn't think it would win almost two, over two to one. So I actually was in Florida and talking with some of the Amendment Four people um, over the past couple months, and they genuinely had a such a strong grassroots game that a lot of people are were surprised by it but a lot of people also weren't um a lot of floridians if if you just look at the numbers it was 1.4 million people i think were disenfranchised uh because of you know this law even though i think their general slogan was like when a debt's paid it's paid and that resonated with a lot of people they went really strong on advertising they went really strong on grassroots they went really strong on just community outreach in every way shape and form I think Amendment 4, while people weren't talking about it with each other, I feel like it was a really solid initiative that people, that it was written by the people for the people and the right. people approved it. Let's let's talk about some of the key races that everybody was looking at that, that in fact, we, we've discussed several times before yesterday. Uh, we kind of talked about Florida. Bill Nelson defeated uh, Florida currency to Governor Rick Scott by, uh, by about... Uh, less than uh, a half a point, so that's going to go to recount. Uh, North Dakota, 
Dan Lipner, did, did Heidi Heitkamp surprise you how poorly she did? Uh, only because of who her opponent is. So j- just a little backstory, I did spend some time in North Dakota, and uh, so know a little bit about her opponent. Um, but North Dakota is a conservative state, and, has, and she was the only statewide elected Democrat, uh, at least at the federal level, and even for most of the senior offices in the state. I think this, somebody may have been on the Agriculture Commission for the Democratic State. But other than that, the Dems in North Dakota, after ruling the Senate and their one House seat for uh, quite a while, haven't had had their A game for a couple decades now. So Heidkamp having that seat, even for a term, was was a hard fought win. And even then, I believe she only won by a point and a half or two points uh, when she, when she won her her first race. But that said, somebody can fact check me on that. Alan, oh, Alan Moore is about to because you said something that made him just absolutely cringe. Go ahead. Well, it was the reference to. A couple of decades. It wasn't very long ago that Byron Dorgan and Kent Conrad were the two Democrat senators from right. North Dakota. They both served multiple terms. Wasn't very long people, ago. Yeah, people who you, but well, it's long enough that you worked with them. Oh, but that's which is not exactly, you know, a couple of years ago. No, but but yeah. When did they retire? Well, <laughs> look look it up. It was less than two decades ago. My friend. Well, if it's Alan, so that's not a long time ago. Uh, Laura Chavez, the only thing that kept Heidi Heitkamp in this race was the fact that she was Heidi Heitkamp. I mean, th- this is a state that, that Trump won by 36 points. There's no even reason that this should have even been as close as it was, theoretically. Yes, that's true. Probably should have been somehow even a bigger blowout to... <laughs> To hide camp. Okay, that's true. To hide camp, but I will say one thing for her: she she did run a relatively clean race. She really wanted this. She cares about her people, and she kind of went out on her own on her own terms. If you look back to how she voted for Kavanaugh, um, she wasn't going to come down on what she presumes would be the wrong side of history. Almost a I'm Mr. Demille. I'm ready for my close up Sunset Strip esque. Almost. Almost. There we Almost. go. Almost. Uh, let's look at Missouri. Claire McCaskill is out beaten by uh, current state attorney general Josh Hawley. Uh Is this a shocker, Sharmila? No, I don't think it was a shocker. I think Democrats were frustrated by McCaskill's lackluster performance and kind of underestimation of her opponent. I think that some progressive activists were also you know, people on the more left-hand side of the party were frustrated with her for what they saw as her kind of waffling on a lot of issues and, you know, wanting to appease the moderates in her base and wanting to appease the moderates back at home, um, but not taking strong enough progressive stances on some of the issues. So I don't think it's surprising. Um, I know that at the very beginning of the race, Republicans were frustrated with Hawley because they felt that he wasn't, um, stepping up to his obligations to, you know, as the nominee, but I think that he, he corrected that quite quickly. And, you know, he, he saw, he saw the direction the wind was turning, right? I mean, Missouri also went for Trump by, I think, 26 points in 2016. So it's not shocking that it's 18 and a half, but close enough for government work. But so, but Alan Moore, here's the funny thing about Josh Howley with all the scandals, with all of the troubles coming out of Jefferson city, 
none of that st- he, he he was never part of that stench it seems or if it was it really didn't take in this election is, is it just for somebody who i thought was as popular as claire mccaskill was in that state uh holly really came out of jefferson city and made an impact so he's younger he was attorney general the big the big attack on him that mccaskill made was that he joined 19 other states in raising questions of the constitutionality of the affordable care act so she was trying to ride that that pre-existing conditions affordable care act issue that was about all she had uh on holly and he was smart attractive uh, as far as i know not associated with with any any per, of the scandals per, in jefferson city per, particular scandal <laughs> at, at all man mccaskill uh, at the same time <laughs> remember so six years ago when she right. would have lost to a stronger candidate invested money in helping todd a- the famous todd aiken yes um uh of legitimate rape fame right um uh, become the candidate. She cleverly spent money to help him in the primary, and then he completely imploded and and was an embarrassment, and she won. Uh, Holly wasn't going to do that, and uh, what, what was interesting about that race was that it, it, it was perceived heading into it as much closer than it ended up and a being. Uh, a, a being. By the Couldn't- way, just, just to... To to clear up the question that that Dan had wondered about in his a couple yes, you're, uh, Alan, you're right. I've looked uh, it up okay, in, in okay, dog years. Go. I'm right. Okay, in dog <laughs> years. In dog years, it would have been. That three. sounds so Trumpian, <laughs> Dan. Nice work, man. Nice hey, work, Dan. Dan just, me, just so everybody else knows. Okay, here we go. Dorg, fact check. Fact check. Dorg, you, know, you know what? Hold on for a second, Rob. At some point, we need to get like a sound check, sound like blast. So like when like all of a sudden it just goes. Sound check or fact check by Alan Moore. Yeah, Every time he does this, maybe a little lightning bolt, a bill, something like He's that. Some, some, that's we, awesome. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so just so, so okay. for for people, <laughs> Dan was madly looking it up because he desperately wanted to be right about this. He was but wrong. Dor- Dorgan was done in 2011. Okay. You understand that most of the people that are listening don't know who Dorgan is. Byron Dorgan of North Dakota, the, the, they don't the care. Democrat senator, stepped down. They care because they care about facts. Oh, okay. Like everybody at Backroom Politics cares. <laughs> um, <laughs> 2011 was his, he was done. And Kent Conrad, okay. 2013. There, there we go. So. That, okay. Still. Almost, in case anybody almost a generation. No, no, Dan, 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 I'm ending this. Dan, I'm ending I'm not going another five minutes talking about two retired senators. Thank you. I'm talking about Missouri. Thank you. Oh, okay, there you go. No, so, but this is to piggyback on Alan's point about Claire McCaskill. Since we're talking about facts, how she chose to help Todd Aiken was by running ads against him in the primary, calling him the most conservative candidate out there, which in in primaries, the base votes. So more conservative voters supported Todd Akin, which, so, which is how she ended up selecting her opponent in the general election. It was a very politically shrewd move. Let's move on un- to... Un- undeniably. No, no, very smart move. I will give her that. Uh, shocker coming out of Nevada, Laura? You got the incumbent Dean Heller losing to sophomore Jackie Rosen, Democrat. Uh, Clinton won Nevada by 2.4 points, but still a lot of people were betting that Dean Heller, this was his to lose. 
It's weird because I genuinely don't think I'm shocked by I'm shocked by all of the races and none of the races at the same times. I think, um, yeah, I don't know on this one. In all really? honesty, yeah, this one is a Nevada's a weird. It's a great state, it's a, but it's, it's a, a weird it is state. A weird dynamic. Going it's a on weird out there. state that it's got its blue pockets. It's got its red zones. Like it's one of those purple states that you're just gonna have to watch. And in 2020, it's up for grabs for anybody. Alan Moore. Yeah, Heller Heller was perceived uh, by all the pros as being the most vulnerable sitting Republican because uh, it's a tough state and because Clinton won that state. We were we were talking about all these these Democrats in in Trump states. Well, Heller was and, the one uh, candidate up in a in a Clinton state, and lo and, and he was trailing in the polls throughout, and he lost. So. Not a big surprise. Not a big surprise. So Sharmala? I feel like in 2017, we definitely felt that about Heller, especially around the time of the ACA, you know, repeal and replace debacle. That's kind of when it seemed like Dean Heller was really on the hot seat, but it seemed like he'd recovered his standing from there. And one thing that I've been noticing about the midterm results is that it's not just about the president and the candidate itself when you look at these Senate races. It also, I think there's a strong correlation to the governor of the state as well. Right. And Nevada still has a very popular Republican governor in Brian Sandoval. So I think- that didn't, that, didn't, that didn't help the incumbent right. and Republican that's why I think U.S. That senator. The result is actually, is actually a surprise. Well, right. it, and they had a gubernatorial uh, election and the Republican lost. Adam Laxalt lost. Lost, right. So, uh, but but I, I thought what, where, where Sharmila was going, I, and I think she touched on it, and this is important, it's so fun for us to think, oh, Trump versus the Democrats in every single case. It doesn't work like that. Those trends matter. They affect turnout. Um, they can affect but, how people vote. But local elections are always, to a significant degree, can, to a significant about the candidates and about what's sit going there and on. Tell me, House, yes, I agree with you. As we've seen in the House races, I absolutely agree with you. I don't know if we can't say that about the Senate. I think the Senate stops being a all politics is local concern and becomes more indicative of the support of the party. How how much you can get that base to drive? Uh, I, 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 the House. I, I I agree. It's all politics. So as we saw last night. One was a referendum, a local referendum against Trump. One was a nationwide base pulling for its president. Dan Lipner, you were going to say something. Yeah, but then you have to look at Ohio, which went in two directions as well, much like Florida with the voter initiative. Ohio went in two different directions at, at the top. The governor's race and the Senate race went in different directions. Chair, uh, I mean, Chair I was Brown, the Democrat, people that thought that that Rod Cordray was going to win that race. So, and where Chair Brown won in a walk, and yet, and yet, everybody I had talked to in Columbus had said that there's no way that Dewine wins as governor, and pulled it out. I mean, not a huge win, but a big enough buffer to have everybody stumped. That was a good win. That was, that that was, was a good win he had. A, a, a solid win. I'll give yeah. him that. Yeah. Admiral Ken, let's let's go back to Florida real quick and talk about this Bill Nelson, Rick Scott thing, because I, I, I also want to talk about the governor's race down there, which uh, late last night, the Democrat, uh, Andrew Gillum, had conceded 
to the Republican congressman and now governor-elect Ron DeSantis. Uh, the polls had this completely wrong. I saw some polls, yep. even the conservative ones at Quinnipiac, having uh, having him up at least uh, two or three, four points. The w- w- who got it wrong and why? Well, I, I think what's more also important about the polls getting it wrong is not only were they wrong, but they were off well outside their uh, error of margin. Uh, yeah, their error margin. Um, so I think part of the problem, and and I and I've been concerned about this for a while because uh, I've gotten to the point now where I, I just don't believe the polls. I, I really don't believe the polls. I, I you know whenever I, I I see something you know this thing you know so and so this group of people believe this that or the other. I think because the sampling set has is, is so small. It really is not truly indicative of what's really going on. And what I mean by that is a lot of people now, and my family is, is, is certainly one of those, we don't have a landline. We've got cell phones. Uh, my, my wife's got her own phone. My, uh, I've got mine. And in the old days, uh, getting people on the phone uh, to give their opinions about things was, from a technical perspective, pretty easy. Whether they chose to talk to you or not was another thing. Now, You've got both those challenges. They don't want to talk. They don't want to tell you what their true feelings are, and it's really, really hard to get a hold of them. So I think uh, the polling, not only in Florida, but I think the other uh, the other polls that were were amiss, if you will, uh, were impacted by by those two events. Um, I think that going forward, uh, we've got to you know the, the the polling companies have got to find a different way of of one getting sampling sets that are significant enough to show realistic trends, and two, they've got to be a little bit more imaginative as to how they make contact uh, with the sample set. Because, I mean, in one case, I think one pollster I was listening to last night said that they made 100,000 calls, 100,000 calls, you know, to get a decent sampling set, and most right. of those calls went unanswered. Alan Moore. Tough business. Yeah. Alan Moore. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the the polling challenge continues. I myself felt that the pollsters had a a fairly good day yesterday, unlike two years ago. Um, When you look at it, the outcomes that we were thinking, looking at polls and and other information in in the last two months, pretty much played out. We thought the House would win fairly cleanly. We thought the uh, the Democrats would win in the House. We thought the Republicans would hang on to the Senate. Maybe a change of a couple of votes, uh, and and that 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 played out. What Ken is talking about um, is something that all these pollsters have been wrestling with for years as people's behaviors change. Rasmussen polls still use only landline, as I understand it, which right. is why they tend more Republican than reality. The other the other firms have been more aggressive in trying to find other ways, both in terms of uh, cell, digital f- media. cell phone reach out, but but also digital media requests. Those are a, a sub, much more subject to it's, to manipulation. I, I, I want to talk. I want to talk about that. We'll probably talk about that next week, but. Uh, I want to get back to the races real quick before we're, we're kind of running through the break right now, and I'm getting like mad hand signals. I honestly believe he's actually giving me the sign for I'm going to rip your throat out, that being Rob in the cage. No, that's the finger he's giving you. Uh, oh, okay. That could be. Oh, we're number one in our time slot. Uh, Arizona. 
Arizona too close to call. This is Arizona and Nevada almost identical as being so purple it's almost impossible to even pick where this might go? Laura Chavez? I think so, yeah. It's definitely one of the – I mean, the good news is Arizona's getting a woman senator. That's amazing. Yay, first time. First Yay. time. We're doing it. But, yeah, these two states are – I mean, <clears throat> the American Southwest is having this real moment of um, – I'm going to call it change in that its demographics are – kind of starting to skew a little bit more to the minority side due to Hispanic uh, population growth. Um, the aging population there is still there. So you've got a, this solid number of Republicans that are still there. Uh, stereotypically, I just want to say not all people of a certain age are Republicans, not all uh, Latin and Latinx people are Democrats. But you have these two um, ever-growing populations that are kind of coming at each other not in an aggressive way, but definitely when you look at the polls, um, which I know you said we'll talk about another time, but when you t- look at them, you're definitely seeing this kind of contradictory growth, and it's just turning the state purple, so it makes it so hard to figure out. But it's a false, it's a fake reality. It, it, it's, it's almost like- Politics are a fake reality. Well, that 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 too is true. Uh, what, what do you mean, a fake reality? It, it's not Define your terms. It's, it's, it's fake reality? <laughs> This isn't real world. This this is this is a fantasy land for us. We live in a bubble. We're we're in the matrix. We are in the matrix. I was just gonna say that. Red or blue pill. Oh, we made another movie reference. Yay, red or blue pill. I I think I think Sharmila just took a big chunk of water drinking the red pill. Hey, uh, Sharmila, let me stick with you since you took the pill. Uh, Kirsten, Did not, that did not come. Oh my up. God! Really, dude? You know, we're gonna, you know what, Rob? I'm gonna go get another like alcohol. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go get another beer. We're gonna take a break. We will be back in two minutes. Dustin's yeah. going off for his blue pill. I'm going out for my blue pill. <laughs> I'm going out for my blue pill. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is backroom politics. Nice choice in music, by the way. Thanks, Rob. Rob, yeah, Rob also giving me the high sign. We'll be back in five minutes. Stay with us.
live from Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics with moderator Justin Russell. And we're back with our special edition. It is our midterms post-mortem show for the best political talk show you've never heard of. Backroom Politics live from Podcast Village in Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. Joining me in studio, former Undersecretary of Commerce, Alan Moore, uh, News E production goddess, Laura Chavez, former Clinton attorney and counsel, Sharon Lachari, retired once our Admiral Ken Carradine, and somewhere in an undisclosed location in Maryland is the former Biden operative we know as Dan Lipner. In the cage, Rob, and also Audrey is at some spa somewhere in Saratoga Springs, New York. Uh, we're continuing our discussion covering the midterms. We were leaving off as I was accusing Sharmla from taking a red or blue pill from the Matrix. Sharmla, let me stay with you. Is it? Does it really matter in the grand scheme of things? As Laura pointed out, you're getting a woman senator from Arizona, which is in itself an achievement. They're saying that Martha McSally isn't exactly as Trumpy as she may lead on. Kristen Cinema might be a lot more moderate than she might lead on. Does it really matter as long as we get a solid senator out of the state of Arizona? I think if you're a person who cares about policy, yes, it does matter, right? Um, and I think it depends on what your constituency is. I think that if you, yes, it's Arizona. McSally might not be kind of as hardcore conservative as she's positioning herself cinema may run more to the middle than, you know, because she knows that she can't be as super progressive in Arizona. But I think that when it comes to large scale, large scale policy issues like reproductive rights or LGBT, LGBTQ equality or healthcare or, you know, any number of, of social and, and probably fiscal issues. Like I, I do think that these two women are expected to hold their party line. So, yes, I think it is significant. Just because they're both women right. does not mean that they are aligned in policy at all. And thank you. doesn't mean that they're either of them is necessarily going what, to cross. What was the, the thank you for? I missed Red or blue senator. What was the red? What was the thank you for? For acknowledging that women can be conservative or liberal, Republican or Democrat. That's true. That is true. And, and you know, and what you know, one of the things that came out of uh, last night. Um, in, in looking at some of the exit polls, um, the real breakout among women of different parties, um, Democratic women made up about 23% of the uh, the voting electorate nationally last night. 96% of them went uh, for Democrat. Uh, Republican women made up about 16% uh, of the voting um, electorate, and 93% of them went for Republican. Weird. Okay. Weird. I just want to clarify one thing. I was saying it's great that we have a woman. No, no, no. I agree I just, with you. No, no. I'm, I'm well not aware aware of the fact this. that just to like reinstate, I totally understand that women can be on the right, they can be on the left, <laughs> they can be from Mars, from Venus, who knows? I but I just want to make sure that everyone knows I've made my statement. Little, little, You're good. Yeah. We're literally talking about midterms as we're sucking down Stella Artois ciders. That's great. And I'm uh, so jealous. You are, you're in your house. Go get one. I know you have beer in that place. How do you I know that? I have the same Stella Arsois cider that you guys do. Have I you ever met, you've met Charmelin. You, you know she has beer in that place. Anyway, 
let's move on. Let's talk about the big 300-pound gorilla in the Senate discussion room. <laughs> let's talk about Texas. Did Dan Lipner was Beta O'Rourke just this magical, mystical pink unicorn that popped out of nowhere from the magical forest that we're never going to see again? Or did Beto O'Rourke actually come out with some political credibility in this? Until I see it happen more than once in three cycles, as far as I'm concerned, he's a unicorn. An impressive unicorn, but he's a unicorn. Alan Moore, they're literally talking about Beto O'Rourke as a possible 2020 candidate. The guy has been on stage for a political minute. Uh, are the Dems literally worshiping, as we put it out, a pink unicorn? They are. Um, they, you've got, you've got this guy, who, oh my gosh, he was a member of the House, and you walk along a backbencher by that. You means. walk along the, you walk along the beach and look for his footprints. You won't find them. They are not there. And then he suddenly emerges, and he is the darling of the Western and Eastern press. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. And he was largely a backbencher. He, I mean, this guy this guy was, was lucky to get C-SPAN time. He was not visible, except that he's got this very, very slight resemblance to some of the Kennedys. And then it was like, oh my God, the new Kennedy. Now this guy, this guy takes on the single most unpopular senator in modern American history. It's Texas. So <laughs> most people think, oh my God, you, you don't win unless you're a Republican Texas. He raises something like $80 million. He has tens of millions of dollars more than Cruz, and he still loses. But, and we're still talking about him. Oh, yeah. my 40, God. $40 million of that, I think, came from uh, Cruz's Republican colleagues to beat him. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, Dan, tell me, tell me if this is wrong. I literally could have run Rob the Engineer on the Democratic ticket and he still could have shown that much potential and raised as much money as Beto O'Rourke did no, in Texas. No, no, absolutely not. No, absolutely not. Wait, wait, so, every, there was no money years, in Texas. This is, this is None the, of this money this came from Texas, time. Dan. This, None of this, this money came third, from Texas. This is the third time in 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 my <laughs> lifetime uh, in paying attention to politics that Texas has thrown up a candidate that's become a bit of a national darling at the statewide level. I'm trying to remember who the guy was that was driving around in the red pickup truck. Exactly. Uh, that's that, that, but, no, no, that's that's a really good point. You have to try but, and remember who that other guy was. But, We're going to be talking also, about Beto O'Rourke in the same way. What, what, what was Wendy, uh, Wendy's last name, the woman who was standing up Wendy for Davis. abortion rights? Wendy Davis, who was also in that same vein. She was a national darling and brought in, and brought in some serious money in, into her race and promptly got destroyed. O'Rourke not only bringing in money, but bringing it as close as he did, which was very impressive. I mean, Ted Cruz got a real scare. Um, so that was both Ted Cruz and the comp and his competitor. O'Rourke did an impressive showing, regardless of his footprints as as a member of the House. You know. Candidates can come out of no place and show some impressive skills. And O'Rourke showed some impressive skills there. Sherman, I don't think he's done from Texas politics. 
Sharma, do you agree with Dan? Yeah, I do agree with Dan. I think that Beto definitely has a career in democratic politics, whether or not it's as a fundraiser, as someone who forms his own think tank until 2020, and he, you know, emerges as some sort of viable vice presidential candidate or presidential candidate, who knows? Um, I think that I agree with Dan that I think the fact that Beto bought it so close, I mean, I think we all pretty much thought he was going to lose, but the fact that he came within, I think, one and a half or two points of Ted Cruz in such a Republican state is an impressive uh, accomplishment in and of itself. And I think that part of this, as much as I hate to dog on my own party, part of the Beto mania was fueled by the fact that the Democrats don't feel that they have a lot of attractive options right now for 2020, right? There is a dearth of talent at the top of the Democratic Party, and people are feeling that vacuum. They are feeling the vacuum of wanting someone as charismatic and well-spoken and sort of universally attractive as Barack Obama, and they're not seeing that from the current slate of candidates. And I do think that that's part so of it's what like, it's like being home- and this, you know, almost irrational desire that he toppled Ted Cruz. So it's, it's, it's Beto O'Rourke is basically the equivalent of being homecoming royalty going to the chess club social meeting. That analogy was very convoluted, so I, I cannot agree. I have no idea what Come that on, really? I get it. Thank you. I get it. Oh. it Translate for us. Translate. The cool kid in school just walked into the AV club, and the AV club is like, what? Oh, my God, you know my name? Yeah, yeah, thank so, you. Yeah. Thank you. Essentially, and I was, yes. I was, trying to, I was going cool to say kid. it's like yeah. the hot it's like if, the hot homecoming queen going to the AV club, but I would have gotten called if, out for that. If all, if, does, if does, all of does that. Does anyone know Cornyn's running for re-election? If, well, hold on for a second. I, I assume so. If all of that is true, oh, my God, what an, a pathetic indictment about where the Democrats are. And in all honesty, okay. the Democrats the are Democratic in a really Party? strange position right now. Sharmal is right. Like, we don't have – we have a large amount of talent, but nobody is we, – we, we want another Barack Obama. We want another magic moment where we can unify a lot of people, where we can excite people. And Beto O'Rourke did that. He excited a lot of but young people. But here's the thing about that, though. And, got them, and got them to the pools. Like so said, no, but, but hold on. It so did Gillum. Maybe exactly. Gillum O'Rourke ticket. Well, I love it. <laughs> Perfect. No, no, you but heard here's it from Alan is. first. No, no, but here's the thing is. Every, it, the Democrats are literally trying to shove a round peg into a square hole. And they do it. Every time you got lucky, the Democrats got lucky with Barack Obama. They got lucky with the fact that they got somebody like Joe Biden with a huge amount of credibility behind him. But right now, there's nobody in the Democratic Party that brings that magical pixie dust that Barack Obama bought eight years ago. Keep in mind that magical pixie dust. And, 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 and by the way, Beto O'Rourke's not it. Oh, I don't. I think he is actually a wonderful vice presidential option. I don't yes. think he should be top of the ticket. Yes. But I would say yes. that the magical pixie dust that was brought in 20, uh, 2008, sorry, in 2008 won't work anymore. The thing is, we have the when 2016 election happened, the game officially changed. Like we could tell ourselves like, oh, up until that night in November, you know, it's politics as usual. But the second Trump took office, everything changed. We can't just fight the same way we used to if we run a Barack Obama type against uh, Trump, we don't know how that's going to play out. The schematics are different. Uh, along those same lines, you just have this uh, candidate in Beto, Beto O'Rourke where he ran on optimism, which is a stark contrast to what tr- a lot of uh, Trumpian politicians were running on. He didn't 
He would. I mean, even if you look back to that one clip where he was uh, talking about the NFL players kneeling, he was very even keel. He understood, and you know, he understood the larger issue there, and he made a really great point that resonated with a lot of people on both sides of that issue. He ran on optimism, which is, I think, why a lot of people were so invested. Admiral Ken, is this the last we see of Beto O'Rourke? I'm sorry. Ask me. I can hear you. Is this the last we see of Beto O'Rourke? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a as a as a as a former uh, as a former Texan, uh, I'm in touch with a lot of those people. Um, I having having watched him uh, in uh, one or two uh, pressers, plus his uh, his debate against Ted Cruz. Uh, the guy's sharp. Um, I think. If this flu that the Republican Party has right now uh, ever starts to subside, uh, I think he will be a very formidable uh, uh, person on the other side of the aisle. Um, and um, and I agree that yeah, he's not he's not ready for the top of the ticket yet. But boy, I tell you what, uh, having him as a as a as a, uh, as a second, um, if the, if the Democrats can find a a, a a, a banner carrier, uh, and he picks up a O'Rourke. I think things are going to be really interesting. If he's number two, then you have to have a woman at the top. You can't. Who, who's look, that woman, though? I don't know. It, Amy Klobuchar, Kristen Gillibrand. I don't Kamala think Harris. it's. I don't think it's Kamala Harris. But, but you know, take 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 your take your pick. And there's a couple. Don't tell of, that. Don't tell that to. Don't tell that to Kamala Harris. There's a there's a governor or two. I've, she, if she's listening. Call me, call me, and we can talk about it. I'll tell you what I'm thinking. Um, <laughs> call and, me too. And, and, yeah. And, or how about come on the air? But how about doing that? That Alan? would be that would that would be totally fine too. I just I just think that one thing that we learned from yesterday, uh, in the outcome in the suburbs, um, with with with. Well, you're taking away educa- the steam. We're going. We're you're transitioning women. us to the house. Well, I'm just saying that I think that 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 it's very clear that the Democrats have got to have a woman on their ticket in one of the two spots. If Beto, if Beto is not ready for the top spot, and I have no idea why anybody would think he is ready, um, then he's backup, and then it's a woman on the top. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Uh, you so just, I want you're, you're going to have to have a, a woman, or maybe two. Char- maybe two women on the ticket. Charmla, what were you saying? So... As much as I would love the world that Alan described to be true, I kind of think the opposite. I think that the ticket needs to be two white men to have any sort of shot of defeating Donald Trump. I think that even though polls right now are showing that, you know, a generic woman, you know, sort of any of the women that the Democrats could put up realistically, realistically, Elizabeth Warren, Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, you know, beat Trump in a hypothetical match off. I think that the Chris Murphy, Sherrod Brown combination might win? Maybe. <laughs> I think that uh, if, other than the fact that Sherrod Brown has absolutely zero interest Doesn't in running for president. Doesn't that get your heart pumping? I think that realistically, if you look at the electoral map, there is no way that a, a female-led ticket can win over the moderates that you need to win electorally. Popular vote-wise, I agree with Alan, but... As we saw in 2016, this is not a world where the popular vote. I, I just want to go back. I just, factor. I just want to go back to the excitement that Dan brought about talking about a Sherrod Brown, Chris Murphy, t- 
ticket. You know that that if that does not get your blood boiling, if that does not bring out your enter Run DMC, I don't know what will. Dan, please tell me you're going to work that campaign. Well, first, I was just throwing that out there as a hypothetical. He was having fun with us, I think. <laughs> he was. I hope. I think he was. Please tell me you were messing what? with us. Not to mention, yeah. how can somebody not love hearing Sherrod Brown's voice all the time? <laughs> just stop. <laughs> just stop. Because I knew there had to be an impression in there somewhere. Uh, House. I mean, let's let's call this what it was. Uh, the House is a shellacking of the Republicans. The Democrats really took solid control. Did you think it was going to be this big, Laura? I did. I actually wanted it. I mean, there are still a couple outstanding races. I actually think it's going to get a little bigger. You think so? I do. I'm hopeful, in all honesty. And a lot of uh, the House is kind of where Democrats are showing their strong suit. Uh, It's a lot of the suburbs where we're getting... um, it's suburbs and urban areas where we're getting a lot of tractions. A couple of those races are still out. Um, I will say one of the things that puts me a little less at ease is how razor thin almost all of these races have been. Like if you look even um, in a of now admittedly very red state uh, like Texas, you have the Gina Ortiz Jones, William Hurd. Uh, race and I actually think they that race was separated by like less than a thousand votes. Uh, William Hurd won that. He's going to remain the um, Republican incumbent, but everybody in that section of San Antonio is just—it's such a split and such a narrow split. But I think when it comes to the House and suburban areas and urban areas, I think it's going to fall a little more blue, or at least I'm hoping to be perfectly honest. Is Biggest surprise of the House races from yesterday? Oklahoma City. Wait, you mean the state of Oklahoma or Oklahoma City? Oklahoma City. We picked up the House seat in Oklahoma. Oh, oh, you mean uh, Congressman Russell's uh, Oklahoma 5th District. That's the one you're talking about. Yeah, the Democrat, what should have been a hugely, hugely uh, red wipeout uh Laura Chavez, it went blue and went with a blue woman. It went with a blue woman for less, and I apologize, I I just pulled up the numbers on, and I'm admittedly looking at CNN politics, so bias as you will, Uh, but again, for less than 5,000 votes. So it is so narrow. This country is genuinely so divided in this. But yes, an incumbent did fall for, or an incumbent, a Republican incumbent did fall. My cousin. Russell? Yeah. Yeah, okay. We'll talk, about that. we'll talk about that later. Yeah. We'll talk about that later. All right. uh, I would say Kansas. Kansas. What about what about Kansas? Oh, Shanice David, the uh, first lesbian Native American candidate beating the GOP. Well, wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Let Let's separate the two because two, just each one of those alone would be fantastic. She is the first American Indian woman to be elected to office. Number one of. One of two. She's one of two, two, but she was the first declared, so she would have been the first, second one further out west. And number two, she is a, she is a uh, openly gay, uh, openly gay woman, a lesbian. Uh, are, are we are we starting to see that trend? Are we starting? To, are we going to start seeing? Because we also have the first openly gay governor elected. Uh, are we going to see more of the LBG community on both sides of the aisle? become more of an active force in politics, Alan Moore? 
it's 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 continuing to to present itself. It's continuing to come forward. It's going to depend on the individuals. Um, I mean, I think you'll see that. The, well, it's the, stopping a big deal that oh, they're LBGT, right? And, and it's that, more focused on the individual. I mean, it, it's going to affect some people's thinking negatively as well as positively. But then people are going to say, okay, who's going to lead us? How important is it? What are we looking for? How, what do you think about this particular person? And a lot of the these candidates, is, it, we're, we're back to this question of the House, um, where. All politics is local, even more than in the Senate. I'm not willing to concede that 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 I was local right. politics don't matter in the Senate, but they particularly matter in the House. Yeah, and uh, trust me, it, it was awesome. Uh, so, Dan Lipner, biggest surprise in the House races? Well, I mean, the Oklahoma. I'm sorry. The Oklahoma City race. That was my pick. That's that's your that's your biggest pick. Okay, Admiral Ken. Anytime, Admiral Ken. So with any of the guys who are under indictment. <laughs> we haven't talked about that yet. Well, yeah. Admiral uh, Ken. Well, I, I guess the thing that I would say is, you know, we, we talked in, earlier in the show about the fact that that the Senate is less about local politics and more about national politics. I guess the thing that my big surprise was that even with all the BS that the president was throwing out in the last two weeks, um, Middle Easterners um, embedded in the uh, the caravan, sleeping right next to people with smallpox and uh, and Ebola, um, and the fact that he was going to basically get a middle class tax cut passed before the election. Um, even with all that, people as many people voted for to support him as they did. That was my big surprise. I was dumbfounded by that. Did Alan Moore? Did did the amount of Republicans? retiring this year, particularly senior Republicans. Was this an opening that the Democrats took advantage of, or was this uh, was this predestined? No, they, it, they did take advantage. And I think that, that there were, it, it speaks also to this point that we talked about before. Republicans were expecting to not have a great year. Uh, Republicans that were in any way identified as, as, as moderate, worried about getting primaried, um, some of those open seats went uh, to the Republicans, but more went to the Democrats than would have had all of those candidates decided to stay. And also, in terms of resources, res- we spent five and a half, five, over $5 billion this go-around and everything, and that's sort of a scary number. But, but that doesn't mean that there's infinite resources among the parties and among the party committees. And when you've got tough races that could have been easier races— Money gets spent in place A and doesn't get spent in place B. Right. As Laura pointed out, some of these races were pretty close, right. and some money might have made a difference in okay. some of those. All right, I'm going to let that be the last word for this break, uh, or for this segment. We're going to go to break. We'll be back in two minutes with our continued special edition coverage of the midterms. We're going to talk about the fallout and what's to look forward to in the next six months, next year, next two years of a Trump administration. This is Backroom Politics. We'll be back in two minutes. Just being friends would never do. And now we're reacquainted. And all the stars seem fresh painted. And here's what I long to say to you. Hello, heartstrings. 
tell you fun If I could, I would be bound forever And I'd never sever me from you You won't believe it's true But I've been missing you I dream of kissing you Let's give it one more chance One more slow dance Heartstring, let's sing Tie my heart to you Hello, heartstring Where have you been? If you could only read my mind What a tale you'd find If I could, I would Be bound forever And I'd never sever me from you Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics with moderator Justin Russell. And we're back here live at Podcast Village here in Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics, the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is our special post-mortem edition of our midterms and our eighth birthday here at Backroom Politics. Uh, We're continuing our discussion in the House, and basically, let's start taking a look forward. The... The big question now is, now that the dust is settled, we've got maybe one or two, but we're pretty sure this is a Democratic majority House. The question is, Dan Lipner, does Nancy Pelosi come back as Speaker? Dear God, I hope not. And this is not that I have anything, any issues with uh, Nancy Pelosi, the former Speaker of the House. It's just that she is a big, ripe target for conservatives. Uh, I have to redub my uh, phrase, the Hastert rule, since Hastert is no longer a com- completely political unknown. But while he was Speaker of the House, nobody knew who Denny Hastert was other than political insiders. And the Speaker of the House is just a target for the opposition party if too many people know them. And we need to find somebody else that, that is skilled, but that, the, that Trump cannot instantly vilify uh, the way Nancy Pelosi was and will be again. Shermley, here's here's my here's what's got me scratching my head. 
everybody knows that Nancy Pelosi is a polarizing figure in the Democratic Party. The Democrats are trying to regain some sort of semblance of reality and leadership. If you know Nancy Pelosi is a problem, why do you bring her back? Well, I think, A, she's incredibly skilled at what she does, right? She is very skilled at leading her caucus and, and working out deals that, you know, people can agree to. B, she's an incredibly prolific fundraiser, so people don't want to piss her off. Um, and C, who else is there? Right? This has been a problem for the Democrats this entire time where they're not cultivating new leadership. But, but, so, but here's the problem is. <laughs> if right, you but Denny Hastert came out of no place to be made speaker. Hold on. Hold on. The... the but the reality, Sharmila, is that, you know, this you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. At some point, the Democrats are going to have to roll dice and say, look, we got to find somebody who's going to be able to bring us back. There was some semblance of getting the White House back in the next four years, possibly six. Right. And if they can find that person before January, huzzah. But as of. As of right now, I don't see who the Democrats are going to put up who has the combination of experience and skill that Pelosi brings to the table. I mean, as a woman, and I don't know if Laura will agree with me or not, but as a woman, I've always found it incredibly sexist and offensive how Nancy Pelosi gets blamed for everything that goes wrong, right? She's not, um, whoa, 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 whoa. She's not being blamed for everything that goes wrong because she's a woman. She's being blamed for everything that goes wrong is because she's a political machine, the daughter of a political boss out of Baltimore, and she is her dad's daughter. We don't blame yeah. her because she's a female. I agree to disagree. I she, think we blame her because she's a political. She's a political when you hit look person. At the criticism that Nancy Pelosi received after John Ossoff lost his race. I felt, and I've always felt, a lot of this stuff is gender-based. And yes, you can you can argue that it's only because she's a well-known political figure, but I do think that the, a lot of the vitriol directed towards her that's not directed towards Chuck Schumer is because of the fact Wait that a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Alan Moore, back me up on this. The idea, Whoa. this whole idea, or I'm sorry, Dan, uh, Admiral Ken, back me up on this. The whole idea of this, I'm just a simple... I'm just a simple member of the House from the Bay Area just trying to make my way in the world. It's complete and total garbage. No one has ever said that. Uh, wait, But wait a minute, wait a minute. Justin just did. Yeah, I, I just did. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right? no. I, no, no, wait, no, no. I mean, tell me if my point is. Tell herself as a power player and someone who has worked to the level she's at and is not going to apologize for it. And I think, I do believe that people find that behavior much more offensive in a woman than they do in a man. And I think that she has been outsizedly punished for it and has a lot of vitriol to her. She she's an unapologetic woman. I, I got it. I got it. I guess since Justin invited me into this. Sharmila, you, you you probably won't find a bigger ally on this on this panel probably than me, <laughs> but I I gotta respectfully disagree with you on this one. I mean Nancy Pelosi and remember I, I'm 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 the I'm the guy that's teetering on the edge of becoming an independent from being a Republican all of his voting life. Nancy Pelosi, the issues that 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 my fellow Republicans have with Nancy Pelosi have nothing to do with the fact that she's a woman. We it has to do with the fact that in my case. She used military aircraft to basically fly her home on vacation. That just is wrong. And she's a political animal. 
that has basically not done a whole, not done, not done the Democratic Party that much good. Other, other than the, being the other Speaker than, of the House has always gotten rights to uh, Air America. Dan, okay, Dan, Any- Dan, let me finish. I was just going to say, other than the history-making role that she served as being the first woman Speaker of the House, but beyond that, any issues that people have gotten uh, got with Nancy Pelosi, it's not about her gender; it's about her politics. And the way that she 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 goes about them, she's a political animal, much like uh, Newt Gingrich was one. People had issues with him for doing the same kind of stuff. I did. Is is there any possibility that there could be a dark horse challenger? Laura Chavez. Poor choice of words, since Clyburn is is floating out there. Ah, <laughs> uh, is there? Go ahead, Alan. Yeah, so uh, th- th- this is delicate territory here, um, but but to say that that her gender makes no difference to how she is treated would be like saying that Obama's race had nothing to do with how he was treated. It is a factor. Is it the primary factor? No, but I don't think that's what I don't think that's what Sharmila was saying. It's a factor that the different standards are applied. Now, yes, she's the Speaker of the House. Yes, mostly, in my judgment, she's judged by her behavior as Speaker of the House um, that doesn't have to do with gender. Gender adds an aspect to it which invites uh, her, her opponents to, to play that card a little bit, just as race can play a card. So, so is it the main card? Is it? Is it dominant? You know what, the, no. Alan, that's, you know what, I, I, th- to me, I think that's a crutch for everybody that, that brings that up. I, I, I don't even think Nancy Pelosi. Well, you can call it a crutch, but how about dealing with facts? How about saying, dealing with the wow, facts. I'm dealing that, with the facts that the, that, the, that the people that I deal with, that, I, I mean, going back to Congressman Al, who actively worked with her, could not stand her, not because she was a woman. There were plenty of women members of Congress that Congressman Al, God rest his soul, used to get along with. He couldn't stand her as speaker because of the way that she would have but, other people do yeah, her political you, bidding. You're you're using the example of Al, who I would agree he wasn't he wasn't he acting was no sexist fan. to her. We're talking about the big yeah. broad world out there. We're talking about how yeah. voters feel. We talk about how politicians play this. They exactly. use how yes. Republicans use her as a bogeyman far more than they do any other politician. There was right, but that's the bridge too far, though, because what Admiral Ken was pointing out that we use Newt Gingrich as a boogeyman. Right. So there, there, there is a parallel there because the Speaker of the House, especially if the Speaker is out there as a national figure and spokesperson, which not all speakers have been, or at least not all speakers are as friendly or unfriendly to the camera, depending on your perspective, as Nancy Pelosi and Newt Gingrich were. They could polarize the opposition. The speaker right, not many people outside of the beltway could speak to. The Denny Hastert before his scandal, most people had no idea who he is. And even post-scandal, most people had no idea who he is. Part of the reason he was speaker is because Tom DeLay could have been elevated. Now, Sharmila's point is absolutely correct and similar to Alan that, yes, women do get judged differently. And the strong, the strong elbows that men in leadership will throw, 
I mean, I still celebrate the th- strong elbows that Lyndon Johnson threw as as the uh, leader in the Senate. That said, women doing the exact same actions in the exact same way get treated differently. And that's a different question and not a question that that does not deserve to be answered. My perspective is the harm that her her target brings to the National Party. Is it unfair? Probably. But I also want to win the White House. So that's part of the balancing act. And I think there's going to be a fight. Laura Chavez. And yes, I 100 percent actually agree with Sharmila. I think that there is definitely a double standard with most women and men in any profession, but especially when it comes to a woman like Nancy Pelosi, who is a political beast. She's willing. Do you think we saw that with Nikki Haley? Is that same double standard with Nikki Haley? Yes. You you do. I 100 percent think there there was. How many um, articles have you seen on what Mike Mike Pompeo wore when he met with or when he went to North Korea? Because I can think of three articles on what Nikki Haley was wearing when she was at the UN last or a couple oh, months ago. Oh. So I think the actual like go, let, let's, the, let's the lens the well, lens on, that on, you Ken. are seeing a lot of women play out in politics is a little bit different in that in that world in general. So you have let, to play a little bit on both sides. So I'm not saying that you have to agree with everything that Nancy Pelosi does, but I do think you have to at least acknowledge that, one, yes, she does come from a political family, which gives her a little bit more of um, a little bit more of an aggressive weight. She knows how these things work and she goes for it. Uh, But with that, she's being called a political beast, an animal. She's being vilified by everyone, whereas Chuck Schumer can do. A lot of the same things, and yet we, we haven't don't talked see about it. Senate leadership yet. But. Fine. Then Paul Ryan, he just kind of was able to create this amazing tax plan, and then say, "Okay, I'm gone, bye." And yeah, he's kind of vilified, but by no means do we see John him. Banner was vilified by everybody on the Hill. He was vilified. He, he was vilified. He was vilified for by being his own and, oh. He was vilified for crying, which is usually seen as a female trait, which is one of those things that, like, you were vilifying Ad- this man for having emotions at that point in time. Ad- Admiral Ken. <laughs> hold, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Hold on. Hold on. Ad- hold on. Hold on. Admiral Ken first. I, I, I am really anxious about doing a tit for tat and who can be the most sexist or least sexist in the execution of their politics, especially when you think about the fact that everybody's hands are dirty on this. I remember very clearly uh, what Sarah Palin was wearing when she was the vice presidential candidate, and that came from the Democratic side. And nobody's hands on this stuff are clean, and right. I would be completely naive to basically think that, that that a person's color or their gender does not enter into how they're perceived by the general public. Been a black guy for 59 years, probably going to be one for 60. Right. I get it. But the fact of the matter is, you know what? This is politics. Welcome to the NFL. All right. Alan Moore, last word on this one. Yeah. What I, I want to come back to the question, the fund, the first opening question, is yeah. she going to be the next speaker? Yes. And, and I'm going to say two things. One, this will be decided in a couple of weeks. They will come together, the new Congress, they will select their leadership. The, the Senate does it. The House does it. It won't wait till next year. Formally, it doesn't happen till next year. Now, there's this interesting dynamic that a number of candidates, Democrat candidates, said, if I'm elected, I will not support her for leader. She could come up short if that were the case. And if that were the case, then what would happen? What I think would happen is the president— 
and I think he said something, he said something to this like, effect. He said this today he said, in his press conference. If she comes up a few votes short, I want to work with her. I think we can work with her. I, I we'll of course probably, he does. We'll probably throw her a few a few. It, it gives him the perfect villain because we want to preserve her as the witch of the house. Yeah. Um, whether it's sexist or not, and yeah, it yeah. is a bit. Um, but but uh, I think that will be known pretty soon. Or if she doesn't actually get a, well, what'll happen is she'll get the votes among the caucus. Right. But that doesn't mean that in in January when they come back in and actually have to vote uh, in the full house, she has to get a majority. Um, we'll see what they do, and we'll see if. If any Republican votes are required to put her across, I, I want to get last word on this. I want to go to Sharmla. Sharmla, does if in fact Nancy Pelosi does get the speakership or does get the speaker's gavel, and the assumption is that, uh, well, who would come up as majority leader? You mean Anyone? minority leader? No, majority leader. Who's going to be the majority leader in the House of Representatives? Well, it's still, will it be Steny Hoyer? Will be Steny, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Is, yeah. is Steny Hoyer the, the selected one? Because here's the dynamic. When yeah, last night, Nancy Pelosi went in front of the American media and the American electorate almost like the head of party. This morning, after the Donald Trump presser, she called a press conference as almost the de facto speaker and head of party. It does. Is she hurting Democrats' chances in 2020, let alone 2024? I think it's too early to predict for 2020. Um, I think that, to Dan's point, if she wins another term as speaker, that could, you know, potentially handicap Democrats uh, for 2020. I think 2024 is way too early. There are a, one million and a half things that can happen between now and then. But I do think, you know, to my earlier point, she is setting it. She is setting herself up as the de facto leader, and sort of, you know, not allowing air for other challengers to um, to, to sprout right. up in her in her shadow. And so, I think we'll, you know, come election or come, you know, leadership election time, we'll see how effective her right. outreach to those progressive candidates who said they wouldn't support her would be. And we'll see who else throws our hat in the ring. If the Democratic Party was smart, we, we would find, and that's a big if, we would pull somebody out of mothballs or from off the bench in an unexpected place into the speakership because the speaker does not need to be a member of the House. Pull Barack <laughs> Obama out or somebody else. Wow. And you know what? I, I hear Mr. Snuffleupagus is available. Beto. I feel Get Beto. 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 Beto is now unemployed. Beto will save the day. Gil, Andrew Gillen will save the day. Now we're talking. Do you think Joe Biden is Speaker of the House? Oh, you know, you know what? I, no, no, you know what? I would be in favor of that. I love Uncle Joe. Everybody loves Uncle Joe. I love people over 70. I, you are people over 70. Well, I love them. Oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Alan, or Alan Moore and Admiral Ken, I want your take. Who becomes, this is the big question is, who becomes a minority leader? Paul Ryan's gone. Uh, everybody's thinking it's uh, Congressman Kennedy out of California, McCarthy. or McCarthy, McCarthy out of uh, California, but that does also doesn't take out uh, Congressman Scalise out of Louisiana. 
Uh, are there outsiders that might take it? Alan Moore, you're first. I think McCarthy uh, has has proven his his worth in that challenging role of leadership among Republicans. I think he will. There'll be a battle, but I think he'll prevail over Scalise. I don't see them turning to a Meadows or one one of the Freedom Caucus people. Uh, does <laughs> does the good congressman from Ohio <laughs> stand a chance? The King. No, Jim no, Jordan. no, okay. no, Jim Jordan. Okay. Jim Jordan. No, no. You, you have to wrestle you for it. Wow. Did, I, you, did, you, just hear, did you just hear what he said? What, I, I didn't Can I nominate he's, he's, Duncan he's, Hunter? Uh, uh, <laughs> okay, I'll deal with that one in a second. Uh, Dan, <laughs> Littner, Dan, Dan Littner literally says you're going to have to wrestle him for it Jim, about the Jim Jordan comment. Too soon? <laughs> Too well, soon? I, who, I'm, am I wrestling Jordan or Dan? Uh, does it matter? Yeah, I'd I'd much rather uh, wrestle Dan. <laughs> I I guarantee, Rob. I guarantee you don't get this discussion during the embassy show. Well, I just want to have some uh, good wrestling here. Yeah, I bet you do. I just want to have some good wrestling here. You sick, sick. Twist. I'm a little creeped out by that. I am very. I am actually very creeped out on that. I hope that was on air. Um. <laughs> All right, let's, let's let's take a look at it because big initiatives. Where what 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 are the big takeaways coming out of the election? I'm going to go around the horn and then we'll close out. Alan, what? Give me your one big takeaway. That this election, unfortunately, was way too much about Donald Trump and the mood of the country, and way too little about some of the major challenges that we face. That got <clears throat> almost no conversation whatsoever. What about our deficit? $800 billion a year with a very healthy uh, economy and a lot of desire for a middle-class tax cut and further spending. No conversation, none at all about whether we're driving ourselves off the cliff. Um, Global warming, uh, a problem that we know exists. Uh, We can't agree on exactly what causes it, and we really can't agree on what to do about it. Almost no discussion uh, about that. Immigration was 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 treated grotesquely. I have this naive hope that maybe now we can tame the conversation and tame the mood and 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 work together right. towards some kind of a solution. And, and final thought, Mueller, I think, was a winner yesterday with the divided uh, with the divided Congress. Yeah. I think we'll hear from him in a couple in a month or two or three, right. and then we'll have his report, and what? the House will do what what it wishes, and so will the Senate. Admiral Ken, what's your big takeaway? Your one big takeaway from last night? <laughs> um, that healthcare is still on the minds of many, most Americans. Ninety percent of the Republicans believe that the that the that the Republican ninety percent of the Republican electorate believe that that Republicans are going to um, save pre-existing conditions, despite the fact that there's lawsuits trying to kill it. And then conversely, ninety percent of the Democrats. Uh, who voted for Democrats believe that the Democratic Party is going to save it. So healthcare is still number one on the list. Uh, um, uh, Carvel may be right that it's the economy stupid, but it's right behind it's going to be healthcare. Charmla, what's the one big takeaway from last night? Um, you know, other than a few notable exceptions, I think you're seeing the country getting more divided. Red areas are getting redder, and blue areas are getting bluer. Um, because that Oklahoma the- Five race was such a red race. I'm sorry. That Oklahoma five race that won. Look, the one I said blue? with some notable exceptions. Okay, I think okay. you, the overall trend you're seeing is like in the Northeast, that state got bluer. We had several Republican congressmen 
who were knocked over for Democrats. And, you know, you're seeing in North Dakota and in Indiana and Missouri, these places are getting redder. They're knocking off their their Democratic senators. So and I think that that's a worrying trend for the yeah, country. But you, but you that... look at real quickly, you look at Iowa. Iowa was blood red until yesterday. They only have one red congressman going back to Washington. And unfortunately, it's who is kind of, the worst of the bunch. Which, which, exactly. Uh, interesting. Interesting. Dan Lipner, what's your one big takeaway? Subpoena power in the hands of Democrats. <laughs> I think we're going to let that one sit for a second. And Laura Chavez, what's your big takeaway? I'm going to steal Sharmila's. This is a really divided country, and I don't know when things are going to come back together and start playing as a team. Yeah, I, I mean... You know, here's the biggest here's the biggest problem. Two big takeaways I took from last night. I, I will tell you right now, if the Democrats were smart, which they're not. Sorry, Sharmila. Sorry, sorry, Dan. Uh, if I was Tom Perez, well, I never want to be Tom Perez. If I was out of the DNC, the two Democrats I would be talking to right now and put them on pedestals and send them forward. Joe Manchin and Sherrod Brown. I would put those two so far out front. I would make them the voice. Those two are sensible and moderate enough that they could get a lot of this in-between moderate vote, which they desperately need. Um, the reason you're not a member, the permanent member of the Democratic National Committee. Yeah, what's that? There's a reason you're not a permanent member of the Democratic National Committee, Justin. Because I'm a Republican or because I think too smart? Because Ma- there's no way Manchin could do it, and Sherrod Brown doesn't want to. Now, Sherrod Brown is not a horrible pick, but he at least represents the face of workers uh, in the Democratic Party. He's done that consistently, which, unfortunately, for the Democratic Party, most God Americans forbid, still not identify the party. God as forbid you people. had somebody who could bridge the gap. You don't, you, Alan Moore. I'm going I'm to make this comparison because he's the only one old enough that could actually remember this. Joe Manchin strikes me as an LBJ type Democrat, right or wrong? A late LBJ type Democrat, except he voted for Kavanaugh, and that is disqualifying for him in the Demo- among the Democrats. It's too bad. It's too so bad. I think it's yeah, more. There's also more no evidence he has a Hold on, hold on, real think- quickly, real quickly. We're running out of time. Sharmla first, then Dan. So I think to Dan's point, right, Sherrod Brown doesn't want it. And I think if Joe Manchin was smart, he wouldn't want it either if he wants to maintain sort of a crossover appeal. Right now, I think that the brand name of each party is so toxic to the people who oppose it that if Sherrod Brown or Joe Manchin were elevated to kind of a position of being the speaker or, you know, sort of being the public face of the party, that would erode a lot of their support at home and especially erode a lot of their support with any crossover, you know, Republicans that they have in their base and any moderates. And so way, I do think that right now both brand names are so toxic that it's going to take a lot of reinvention on both parties to to sort of help them regain a bit of that moderate wing. By, by the way, two words for the Democrats, Michael Bloomberg. So I'm going to say, oh, God. Uh, don't uh, look. Yeah. You got anybody don't better? You got Justin. any better? Anybody better? No, you don't. Uh, hey, the, the other big takeaway, I, I, I think, last night that, uh, and Alan, I want to get your your check on my math here, is Mitch McConnell strikes me as the as the best politician 
in the Senate when it comes down to it. As much criticism as he's gotten, he's probably the smartest guy in the Senate. Am I off on that? Uh, you won't get any argument from me, just as you've never got any criticism of him by me. I've yeah. always been his defender. I have enormous respect uh, f- for him. But this is he a guy stays that kept... focused and steady. There is he nobody didn't panic during the re- the blue wave talk. There is there is nobody among him among the Senate Republicans who could pick up more than four or five votes in a challenge to him. From the entire uh, uh, spectrum of the party, he is uniquely supported and respected. Let me ask you, I'm going to ask you one question because I know we're really running up against the clock. Is, is Mitch McConnell the true head of party? Is Mitch McConnell calling the shots even at the White House? No. You no. don't think so? He has influence that is not really recognized. Lindsey Graham has more influence than most of you want to acknowledge, but the president is right. the head of party, okay. and that's part of the problem. Right. One last question around the horn. Who's the next attorney general? Alan Moore? Uh, I got to think about it. I don't have a name. Go ahead. I mean, and- my default is going to be just Matt Whitaker, because, you know, <laughs> why not? Just write it but out no, for a no while. No Lindsey Graham? No. Uh, really? Well, all right. We'll talk about it next week. All right. Yeah, Graham, that, Graham doesn't want it. All right. Yeah. Well, on that, a lot of people have said that. In that instance, on behalf of Alan Moore, Laura Chavez here in studio, out there in New York, Sharmila Chari, Ken Caradine down the Sunshine State, Dan Littner, I didn't know where the hell you are. Uh, I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next week with the best political talk show you've never heard of, Backroom Politics, on our usual schedule. We'll be back Tuesday and Thursday next week. And uh, special thanks to Rob the Engineer. Rob, as always, love you, brother. Thank you for making us sound good. Uh, Audrey Harriton, thank you for putting our stuff together and making us look good. Love you for that. I, again, we'll be back for the best political talk show you see. And, uh, oh, by the way, special thanks to the guys, as always. Podcast Village makes us feel good here. Uh, follow us on Twitter, at Backroom Politic. Follow us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Radio. Or go to our website and get everything backroompolitics.org. Have a great week, America. Bye-bye.